Brought to you by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Trinity School for Ministry podcast. This week, as promised, we will be listening to the first lecture in the Simeon Lecture Series from 2002. Ashley Null was the guest for this particular Simeon Lecture Series, and the topic was on Thomas Cranmer. Null had written a book in the year 2000 called Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance, Renewing the Power of Love. So, I hope you enjoy this uh, first look at Thomas Cranmer's life, setting up his historical context. Thomas Cranmer and his historical context of scholarship. Cranmer devoted the full powers of his position as primate of all England to inculcating the Protestant faith into every fiber of English life and law. In the process, he shattered forever English medieval Catholicism's hegemony over English society. He steadily destroyed its ingrained religious symbolism. He severely disrupted its instinctive communal rhythms. The noted Cambridge historian Eamon Duffy has recently drawn a compelling portrait of the world Cramner sought to leave behind. A beautiful world of soaring church towers newly built. Of instructive, colorful interiors softly candlelit. A balanced world where effective personal piety grieved over the sufferings of Christ. But festive parish bonfires encouraged neighborly fellowship made jolly with English ale. He, this world was a supernatural world where saints and sacramentals diverted demonic fury and blessed and made fertile husbandry and home. A supernatural spiritual world where human tears averted the doom of divine judgment but they also celebrated the indwelling presence of divine love. And above all else, this medieval world was a supernatural sacramental world where liturgy marked life's milestones and offered the daily miracle of seeing one's maker. What would make an Archbishop of Canterbury want to destroy a world such as this? For most commentators, the answer has been decidedly straightforward, although their opinions widely divergent. For many admirers of medieval English Catholicism, Thomas Cramner was clearly just a real-life Tom Snout. You may remember him as the tinker-turned-would-be actor in Shakespeare's A Midsummer's Night Dream. As a time-serving sycophant promoted beyond his promise, Cranmer could only play-act being a real wall between the royal will and the English church. Being incompetent from necessity, he was only too willing to accommodate a monarch's, a monarch's lusts. And so by the work of Cranmer's hand, he provided Henry the chinks the king needed to see his way through to seizing whatever he desired, including a beautiful new wife and the church's ancient wealth. 
View number one. For those traditionalists willing to concede Cranmer some theological sincerity, he was a sad, doubting Thomas, a recipient of apostolic authority who was uncertain about the church's received teaching and even more uncertain about his ability to decide what was right and what wasn't. He was an innocent in high office. He was too amicable to his opponents and too amenable to political pressure. While the second prayer book bent so far to the prevailing wind of Swiss Protestantism, he remained truly Catholic with his 1549 liturgy. And this has provided Catholics with a sure footing for the historic faith in the Church of England. Yet, for churchmen in favor of a decidedly more Protestant Anglican tradition, Cramner was the only true St. Thomas of Canterbury, as John Fox suggested. Motivated by a deep and abiding commitment to Sola Scriptura, Cramner was cruelly martyred as the chief trophy of the papist British monarch's reactionary persecution and primarily because of his public support for both justification and holy communion, sola fide. Despite Cranmer's unfortunate vacillation at the end, his last-minute reconversion to his long-held biblical faith secures his name for the Protestant cause. Thus, he is fit for invocation by all those who seek to legitimize their working within Anglicanism to advance a more scripturally sound faith and practice. View number three. And our fourth and final possible view of Thomas Cramner. For those less dedicated to subscribing all liturgy and learning to scripture, but are still reluctant to embrace the supernaturalism, they would probably say superstitiousness, of medieval Catholicism. They say that Cramner was not unlike Thomas Jefferson, the man whose pen gave our country the Declaration of Independence. As the author of an exceptionally eloquent literary legacy, Cramner bequeathed to the English people a liturgy that expressed the deepest aspirations of the human spirit, and he did so with rhetorical potency and rational clarity. Thoroughly imbued with humanist assumptions and aspirations, in this point of view, Cramner was the founding father of Anglicanism as a via media. This, by the way, is the predominant view in our country, having been promoted by a man named John Booty, who is just recently retired as the official historiographer of the American church. Well, which view is right? Self-serving lackey? Self-deceiving puppet? Swiss Protestant partisan? Or sensible Erasmian humanist? Was Cramner one of these? None of these? or some combination therein. That question is of crucial importance under the current lively debate about the English Reformation. 
On the one hand, A.G. Dickens has suggested that the theme of Protestant conversion is crucial to our understanding this movement. On the other hand, Eamon Duffy has suggested that there was no mass movement to bring about the Reformation. It was merely the coercion of a government who put shotguns to people's heads and therefore brought about a stripping of the altars by a violent act of state. Whether you think the Reformation came about by popular appeal or by royal mandate, figuring out what happened with Thomas Cramner is crucial because he is both a classic example of how one gets converted to become a Protestant and he is actually the theological architect behind much of the acts of state which brought it about. So for us to understand the origins of our church, we must begin by trying to understand the theology of Thomas Cramner. It's such an inquiry is immediately confronted with a vexing question of methodology. Which doctrinal positions should be considered sufficiently foundational as to determine definitively Cramner's theological orientation? Which of his views are the foundation of his thought? Because you see, much of the diversity of thought over Thomas Cramner stems from a little-noticed but compelling fact of the Reformation period. Catholics and Protestants disagreed even over how to define their disagreements. They couldn't decide amongst themselves which was the most important doctrine to disagree over. At Cramner's trial, which was both held before papal and royal officials, he was accused of two chief doctrinal errors. Cramner repudiated papal authority, and he denied transubstantiation. All without a doubt, the marrying authorities considered Cramner's teaching on justification to be in serious error as well. His commitment to justification raised was raised not at his trial at all. In their eyes, in Marian eyes, Cramner was clearly not a Catholic because he had broken with the Pope and denied that Christ's natural body was offered as a participatory sacrifice during the sacrament of the altar. Martin Luther, however, drew a different line between Catholics and Protestants. He considered the doctrine of justification by faith alone to be the chief article of Christian doctrine. He, according to Luther, it was the Son which illuminated the Holy Church of God, the article of faith by which the church stood or fell into ruin. Once justification by faith was lost, Christ was lost, and the church was left without any knowledge of doctrine or the Spirit. Although Luther clearly thought the power of the papacy and the nature of the Lord's Supper were very substantial issues and rejecting the Catholic position on both, he considered them secondary behind the all-surpassing importance of the Bible's message that salvation was by faith alone. 
Since only trusting in God's promises brought sinful humanity into a relationship with its maker, Luther held that justification by faith was the plumb line for the true gospel belief for which he stood. Catholics, transubstantiation and the Pope. Lutherans, justification by faith. How about Henry VIII? He, his church lay somewhere between those two clear standards. The king demanded that the church in England repudiate papal authority in favor of his own headship. But Henry refused to endorse justification by faith, and he publicly defended the presence of Christ's natural body in the Eucharist. For Henry, obedience was the chief theological virtue. And he expected his subjects to demonstrate their Christian faith by submitting to royal authority and doing works of charity, both as necessary conditions for their salvation. He really liked the idea that if you disobeyed the king, you went to hell. To exhibit this peculiar balance of being equally opposed to treasonous papists and Lutheran heretics, Henry had three of each executed in 1540. As a result of the king's opinions, the official formularies of the Henrician church were neither clearly Catholic nor definitely Protestant, but an uncertain, unstable tertium quid, a middle thing. For the Marian authorities, the foremost mark of true Christian, true Christian uh, faith was papal obedience and a proper Eucharistic piety. For Luther, it was justification by faith. For Henry, manifest obedience to God through the king. What was the key doctrine for Cramner? There's the rub. The crucial question is made only more complex by Cramner's self-confessed gradualism in matters theological. He was not like Calvin, whose mind on everything was perfectly formed by the time he was 25. By his own admission, Cramner at one time believed in transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the mass, of pilgrimages, purgatory, pardons, and many other superstitions and errors that came from Rome. And he put away his former ignorance only by little and little, coming to his final opinion on the Eucharist only in his late 50s. Many in the past have found the shifting of allegiance to be a sign of theological instability, proving Cramner's lack of any determinative doctrinal commitment. He blew in the wind like a wind vane. Canon Dixon expressed the judgment of many when he wrote of Cramner in the 19th century. In doctrine, he ran from one position to another till at last he seemed ready to surrender the Catholicity of the church to the sacramentarians. More recently, Jasper Ridley has continued this critical attack, but on a fresh front. 
recognizing Cramner's unquestioned loyalty to Henry VIII, Ridley has suggested that Cramner's only real theological principle was the Protestant notion of obedience to the godly prince. His other doctrinal positions were expediently provisional, always depending on the current prince's current preference. Ridley aptly summarized his assessment of Cramner when he described the archbishop's death as coming at a propitious moment for Protestantism. Quote, Perhaps if he had lived for another hour, he would have recanted again. Rather harsh. Unquote. Other scholars, however, have interpreted Cramner's changing doctrinal positions as a sign of intellectual progress. Seeing in his theological gradualism all the caution and integrity of a true scholar accustomed to weighing both sides of a question before committing himself. In these people's eyes, the Reformation was a period of going theologically from 78s to CDs. And it is no shame to exchange a CD player for a 78. Or other way around. Indeed, Cramner's theological progression can be properly characterized as instability only if the same charge were made against every theologian of worth, including St. Paul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, and Karl Barth. In his quarter centenary survey of Cramner scholarship, Peter Newman Brooks rejected Ridley's approach. Drawing upon Professor Sir Isaiah Berlin's use of an ancient comparison between the hedgehog and the fox, Brooks likened Ridley's unitary description of the archbishop to an ecclesiastical hedgehog knowing but one thing to perfection. Brooks, however, thought that Cramner was a very foxy Archbishop of Canterbury who knew many things. These scholars who credit Cramner with a sound but developing doctrinal integrity see him at best as a crafty fox, intellectually agile enough to adapt his ways to the evolving new ideas and situations of the ongoing Protestant Reformation. At worst, they see him simply as an old dog willing to learn new lessons from his theological trainers. For even among those scholars who are sympathetic to Cramner, disagreement exists as to the nature of his intellectual capabilities. Was he a first-rate scholar or just a good reviser? Now to snare a fox... A trapper must first identify both his din and then trace back his runs. In light of both Henry's structures, in light of both Henry's restrictions on Cramner and Cramner's own gradualism, many of these scholars have sought to classify the archbishop's true theological sympathies by first identifying Cramner's final doctrinal position and then following his trail backwards, okay? Indeed, only under Edward VI did Cramner find the freedom to express his own theological views 
and also gain the opportunity to express these views in the doctrinal formularies that marked Edward's reign. Consequently, the two benchmarks of Cranmer's mature theology date from this late period. His three homilies on justification, of salvation, of the true and lively and Christian faith, and of good works annexed unto faith, and his writings on the Eucharist. A defense of the true and Catholic doctrine of the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, and an answer of Thomas Cranmer unto a crafty cavillation by, by Stephen Gardner, and finally an answer against uh, Richard Smith, as well, of course, as his books of common prayer. In the Parker Society's presentation of the material, Cramner's writings on the Lord's Supper total 379 pages, not including the two prayer books. His teachings on justification, 21. Whether commentators have associated Cramner's mature theological home with his views on the Eucharist or his position on justification naturally depends upon their presuppositions. Was Cramner a humanist, non-papist Catholic whose broadly Catholic Eucharistic piety moderated his, his commitment to justification by faith? Or was Cramner more a humane, non-predestinarian Protestant whose justification doctrine brought about a moderate, reformed Eucharistic piety? What's the relation between the two doctrines? Which one does he start with and therefore is influencing the other? Once you decide his chief doctrine is either the Eucharist or justification, you then read back into Henry's reign a pattern, a pattern of development by which you then understand Cramner's mature views. Two contrasting studies will give us an understanding how this works. In his book, The Mass and the English Reformation, Professor Clifford Dugmore took as his premise that continental Protestant theological trends had no influence in the English Reformation. Therefore, when he examines Cramner's Eucharistic writings, he concludes that the archbishop has made his own study of patristic sources and then was decisively influenced by Nicholas Ridley to adopt Rattram's teaching that Christ's real presence in the sacrament was not corporal but spiritual and without any destruction of the substance of the bread and wine. The result was that Cramner held a non-papist Catholic doctrine of the real presence. Cramner believed that Christ was spiritually but still objectively present as the real consecrator at every Eucharist. And by Christ's presence throughout the whole Eucharistic action, he spiritually fed the worthy receiver. Dugmore styled this position as the Reformed Catholic or Augustinian realist symbolist tradition of Eucharistic doctrine handed down from the days of the early church. So for Dugmore, Cranmer is a Reformed Catholic on the Eucharist. Now, 
he naturally wants to read this back into Cramner under Henry. He acknowledges that there was an existence of a party among the bishops and higher clergy who wanted to extend reforms to the church beyond merely getting rid of the Pope. These reformed Catholics, as Dugmore calls them, included Bilney, Latimer, Barnes, and Cramner. And of course, yes, they embraced justification by faith, and they sought to remove superstitious principles in accordance with Erasmus's scholarship. Yet their sortiriology did not affect their orthodoxy on the sacrament of the altar. For what, quote, for whatever ideas about justification by faith which may have been held by the English reformers in common with the Lutherans, an unbridgeable gulf separated them on the doctrine of the Eucharist. The Henrician reformers never followed a Lutheran view of the sacrament, but held instead to a conventional Catholic Eucharistic piety, including transubstantiation, almost until the very eve of Edmord's, Edward's accession. Thus, for Dugmore, Cramner was a reforming Catholic, both under Henry and also under Edward. And the foundation for his theology was not justification by faith, but a consistent Catholic realist approach to understanding the Eucharist. Although Cramner was primarily responsible for the second substantially less Catholic prayer book of 1552, Dugmore argues that the revisions did not necessarily reflect his own preferences. By then, the more extreme Protestant John Dudley had taken control of the Boy King's Council, and quote, It is obvious that Cranmer had to allow very substantial concessions to be made to the radical reformers but it does not follow that he interpreted the rite of 1552 in exactly the same sense as they did, or that he welcomed all the changes. So Cranmer is a Reformed Catholic throughout his life, and the most important doctrine for him is the Eucharist. Perhaps you can see how useful that would be for certain parties in our church. Peter Newman Brooks has a completely different read on Cramner's Doctrine of the Eucharist and his monograph, Cramner's Doctrine of the Eucharist. His premise is the exact opposite of Dugmore's. Quote, In almost every respect, the English Reformation is act two of a continental drama played out earlier and on a different stage. Not surprisingly, then, Brooks locates the key to Cranmer's thinking not in an adherence to Catholic tradition, but in his adoption of Protestant soteriology. Brooks evaluates Cranmer's Eucharistic writings in the light of the homily on salvation. He starts with justification. And he argues that the central themes of redemption and justification by faith run, quote, like a scarlet thread throughout Cranmer's exposition of both the defense and the answer, unquote. Brooks concludes that Cranmer built his whole sacramental superstructure on the doctrine basic to all Reformed theology, 
the concept of justification sola fide. Because Cramner believed that faith is the one instrument that from the human angle can bring communion with Christ. The logical result of this commitment to justification by faith was a mature Eucharistic theology which made personal faith the determinative factor. Brooks describes Cramner's final position as the, quote, Swiss true Protestant doctrine of the Eucharist, in which Christ is truly but only spiritually present and only to those with saving faith. In fact, Brooks suggested that Cramner chose to write so extensively on the Eucharist precisely because he wanted to ensure that the Romish doctrine of the Mass would no longer impede people seeking a right relationship with God, sola fide. Naturally, Brooks saw the 1552 Book of Common Prayer as completing Cramner's mission, quote, to turn the Mass into a communion, unquote. Two very learned scholars, two completely different views of Cramner, because each takes a different key doctrine as the basis of Cramner's theology. Confident that Cramner eventually held the same Eucharistic theology as Busser, Melanchthon, Bullinger, and Calvin, Brooks, in his monograph, traced the historical development of Cramner's Eucharistic doctrine through three phases, from holding to transubstantiation at the beginning of his archiepiscopate, to adopting a doctrine of the real presence, similar to the Lutheran view later in Henry's reign, through to its final culmination in his accepting the Swiss Protestant position and its expression in the prayer books under Edward. Significantly, Brooks buttressed his arguments by, for the first time, appealing to Cramner's private notebooks, the great commonplaces. And in the process, he definitively demonstrated that Cramner did indeed use Protestant continental sources. Influenced by Brooks's groundbreaking work in Cramner's sources, most recent scholars conclude that Cramner did indeed come to move within broadly Protestant parameters during Henry's reign, and most likely as early as 1532. That was the year when he took advantage of an extended stay in Germany as Henry's ambassador to marry a woman who was the relative of the Nuremberg reformer, Andreas Osiander. Of course, not everyone agrees, but it's still the, the mainstream view. But even if we say Cranmer comes to, to operate within Protestant parameters by 1532, what does that mean? Cramner himself asserted that he had come to the conclusion that the writings of every man must be read with discrimination. Moreover, Cramner's emphasis on holy living as evidence of justification has suggested to some that he muddled the key doctrine of Protestant theology, even in that famous Edwardian homily of salvation. These scholars argue that while Cramner accepted the Lutheran means for justification as by faith alone, he continued to hold to the Catholic notion of its nature as being made personally righteous. 
I'm sure you have been well-schooled in the difference between imputed and inherent righteousness, that Protestants believe that we are credited with Christ's righteousness, whereas Catholics believe that a true personal holiness is infused into you uh, by the sacrament. And in this view, Cranmer believes that you get inherent personal righteousness by faith as opposed to by works. In recent years, the debate over Cranmer's doctrine has focused on the degree to which he uh, was in concert with continental Protestant doctrine. Therefore, the debate is, was Cranmer more Lutheran or more Reformed? This was the fundamental point of a very vociferous disagreement that a Professor Basil Hall had with Peter Newman Brooks and his assessment of the Eucharist. Hall argued that the key to understanding Cramner was indeed his Edwardian writings, but that they were moderate. They were more Lutheran and Melanchthonian and certainly not Reformed. Therefore, he strongly disputed Brooks's suggestion that justification by faith inevitably led to a more reformed view of the Eucharist. And of course, he had a good person to point to as an example. Luther himself never adopts a reformed view of the Eucharist, and surely he was a firm holder to justification by faith. Hall also rightly flagged an underlying weakness in Brooks's landmark study. The fact that Brooks never actually defines what he means by Cramner's adherence to Reformed soteriology. In Hall's view, in the absence of any evidence of Cramner's holding to the predestinarianism characteristic of Reformed theologians, one must only say Cramner was a moderate Lutheran in both his Eucharistic theology and his soteriology, and that his mature views were more like Melanchthon than Calvin. And of course, Hall says 1549 is the true Cramnerian prayer book, not 1552. Well, that was the state of Cramner scholarship up until about 1995. To find a recognizable, if evolving, consistency in Cranmer's performance of his ecclesiastical duties under both Henry and under Edward, Cranmer needed to have been committed to the Protestant cause early in his archepiscopate and to have continued to develop his views along similar lines to the emerging Reformed tradition of such second-generation leaders as Calvin and Bullinger. However, in the absence of any firm evidence to suggest that Cramner actually held to such doctrines as unconditional election and effectual grace, not to mention the lingering questions about how thoroughly Protestant he was himself on justification— the portrait of Cramner as an early Reformed theologian could at best only be judged, not proven. And in the light of Cramner's universally acknowledged moderation, such an assessment could at worst be considered to miss the mark very, very widely. 
As a result, the most convincing account scholars couldn't construct for Cramner was as a tertium quid Protestant, a third party, clearly not a 16th century Catholic, but neither clearly Lutheran nor clearly Reformed. That he, like Henry, held an uncertain, unstable via media muddle and that it would not outlive its author, and rightfully so. All that for open-minded scholars was blown away by the publication of Dermot McCulloch's book on Thomas Cramner, which won the British equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize, the Whitbread uh, Prize for Biography, because it completely revised our understanding of Cramner. McCulloch takes as his premise that Cramner was indeed a committed Protestant by 1532. And he presents a compelling portrait of the archbishop as a working for the evangelical cause throughout his years in office, that he gradually adapted his theology in accordance with the emerging developments in incipient Reformed theology of what he terms the Strasbourg-St. Gall network. Nicely turning Ridley's assessment on its head, McCulloch argues that Cramner eagerly supported royal supremacy as the necessary means to advance his doctrinal agenda, not as the necessary altar on which to sacrifice it. For McCulloch, Cramner is a supporter of royal supremacy because the king is the only figure powerful enough to bring about the theological reformation to which he is personally committed. If Duffy's scholarship raises the question of why Cramner presided over the destruction of medieval England's deeply entrenched Catholicism, McCulloch's magisterial study convincingly answers that Cramner was simply a deeply committed evangelical Protestant. McCulloch is persuasive not only because of the plausible unity he offers to Cramner's life, but also because of its detailed documentary support. And to appreciate his accomplishment, you have to actually have tried to work with the sources yourself and realize the true brilliance and how he brings everything together. It is a most impressive piece of work. But amongst other evidences that McCulloch uses. Under his supervision, a PhD was done called Thomas Cramner's Doctrine of Repentance. And that PhD dissertation did exactly what Peter Newman Brooks did. It went back to the great commonplaces and looked in there to try to understand Cramner's Doctrine of Justification. And by doing that kind of archival work, found clear and compelling evidence that, in fact, he was an early Reformed theologian. And we will be looking in our lectures at the fruit of that research later on today. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of TSMcast. Recorded and produced by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition based in Ambridge, Pennsylvania since 1976. 
Trinity has produced more than 2,000 alumni to plant, grow, and renew churches around the world that make disciples for Jesus Christ. If this episode has helped to deepen your knowledge of the scriptures or strengthen your walk with the Lord, we hope that you'll spread the word and share this publication with others. Also, be sure to visit us online at tsm.edu, where you can explore admissions opportunities, sign up for our e-newsletter, read articles from our Seed and Harvest magazine, or make an online gift to our Trinity Fund in support of student and faculty excellence. Until our next episode, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ fill your hearts and lives with joy. Thanks again from all of us at Trinity School for Ministry, and God bless.